This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. You are listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y l-i-k-e-y-o-u-r-s dot c-o-m for links to our social media all popular podcast platforms and links of interest pertaining to all episodes on this episode i chat with kennedy the creator of the audio drama magus elgar kennedy grew up living on a sailboat in florida at the age of eight his parents invited him and his sister to join them in sailing around the world a trip that would eventually take one and a half years Join us as Kennedy reminisces about his childhood adventures and weaves a humorous tale of living on a sailboat without seeing land for weeks at a time and dealing with the boredom. Here is Kennedy's story. Hi, my name is Kennedy Phillips. I'm 30 years old, going on 31. I live in Lakewood, California, and I'm about to tell you a story about my life. It requires a bit of prefacing because I did not have a traditional upbringing with uh, my family. Uh, I grew up in Florida um, on a sailboat. I lived there for about 12 years. It was a 50-foot golf star called Dasein. Dasein was a uh, play on the German phrase Dasein, but my dad always introduced it to me as if it was just one singular concept, which to him meant being one with the universe or being one with the world. It was a sense of, uh, some kind of Buddhist, uh, state of, uh, belonging, I suppose. <laughs> In 1997, I was about, uh, about eight years old. I'd been going to elementary school for a while and we didn't really move around a considerable amount. We'd go on day sales and stuff. Uh, my parents would work as uh, home health nurses and go to hospitals and other things like that. But one day, uh, my sister and I were asked to come into my parents' bedroom in the stern of the ship. They sat us down and it seemed like it was going to be this big, serious thing. I, I didn't really know what was going to happen at the time. I mean, if I was... Uh, at the age that I was, that that I am now, I would assume that it's kind of like walking in on somebody about to tell you that they've just gotten cancer or something. There was a gravitas in the room. I asked my dad, well, what's going on? And he said, your mother and I want to take Dasein and sail around the world. This would take about one to two years and 
we'd basically be leaping everything. We'd still have the ship, but we didn't think it would be right for you to feel obligated to come with us. So if you say yes, you know, we'll go along together and make a whole family thing of it. If you say no, well, we can, we can leave you with grandma or, or one of our friends or an aunt or something in the time that we're gone and you can continue life as usual. I mean, was I going to say no? (laughs) Even at that age, you knew there was like a once in a lifetime chance. Uh, My sister and I couldn't have said yes any faster. So we, we agreed and we were pulled out of school for about a year and a half, um, gathered all of our supplies and we joined the round the world rally, uh, 97, 98 to travel all around the world, uh, and end at Lisbon where we would attend the expo, the world expo 98. And that was the start of our story. It was, um, it was kind of intense, a little bit surreal, to be honest. Uh, you, you wouldn't expect something like this would kind of happen in your life, especially not at this age. And it just kind of fell into my lap. I mean, like my dad put it in my lap, my mom put it in my lap, but still in my lap it was. I had no bearing on how difficult it was going to be because, you know, when you're a kid, you you just think about like all the fun stuff that's going to happen. You don't think about, oh, well, you might not have enough food or you might not get fuel or a storm might hit or people might try and attack your ship, et cetera, et cetera. The, uh, the first time that I started to realize how dangerous it could have been, we were heading to Panama. It was the second trip or the second leg between us to Jamaica, then, then to Panama. We had only been sailing for about two weeks, maybe three. And a really bad storm hit us. The waves were like blotting out the horizon. There was just the, the amount of rocking going up and down. Just, it was, uh, it was like a slow motion roller coaster. It was just thoroughly unpleasant. Uh, we were all huddled in the cockpit, harnesses attached to like this big metal rung next to the steering wheel. Um, and at one point, we got hit by a stray wave, a rogue wave, that knocked our ship sideways. The water just kind of flooded everything in the cockpit. We, uh, I lost my balance. You kind of had to brace yourself in the cockpit just for something like that. But the way that uh, sailing vessels and most ships are designed, they usually have a lead bottom so that the weight brings it back upright. But if we had been knocked an inch or two more or a foot or two more, we would have capsized and that would have been it. We would have been screwed. It was the, it was a lucky break, but I remember when I was eight years old Looking at the rest of my family, this young child ha- puts a smile on his face, absolutely beaming, f- feeling this adrenaline rush, and say, "And I said, can we do that again? <laughs> maybe it was a coping mechanism, maybe it was just me being ignorant about it or something like that, but I think I was 
starting to understand that even though that this stuff was all dangerous, it this is the time that I was going to feel the most alive for a long time. Speaking, I mean, by, by being alive, there, there are, there had, there were some, some difficult legs. There were some difficult moments. Um, not after, not much after we get to Panama, uh, we, we start heading to Ecuador. Um, that was all fine, but going from Ecuador to Galapagos, Another storm hit and we lost our steering, which is the worst thing to happen. Um, I think it had something to do with the chain in the engine room that uh, controlled the the steering wheel to the rudder. But my dad and my mom are very, very intelligent people and they can think on their feet. They took a giant monkey wrench and attached it to the, uh, the, the top of the rudder. And they, uh, they attached some pulleys to that giant monkey wrench and tied it up into the, uh, uh, some winches to make an impromptu steering wheel out of two ropes and a monkey wrench. It was sad because like they, they could not sleep until they got back to, uh, to do that because the steering, uh, the, the rudder happened to be underneath their bed and they had to rip apart their bed just to get at it. This is Brew Crime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts. We pair a true crime story with a craft beer. That Nina will probably hate. Yeah, probably. Whatever. You can find our show on all your favorite podcast apps, and if you can't find it, contact us, and we'll try and change that. We can be found at brewcrime.com, or on Twitter at brewcrime, on Facebook at brewcrime, or if you want to go to our group, it's group slash brewcrime on Facebook, or on Instagram at Pacific Beer Chat. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and try not to giggle. The problem with this kind of uh, story is that you, you've been away from it for so long that uh, if you want to just talk unabated about it for so long, a lot of the memories tend to jumble up together. Certain details might get missed or something like that. It was, I was pretty young at the time, but there's so many vivid memories Experiencing Panama for the first time was really exciting because uh, going through the uh, the giant blocks with a bunch of other ships, eight, nine, ten, eleven times the size of the ship I grew up on was just daunting. And then you finally get to the other side and the water is just different. Going from the Atlantic to the Pacific, the water is like colder, it's darker, it's honestly fascinating it doesn't seem like something that would be anticipated like why why would the atlantic look different than the pacific at least to a kid's brain but um when it happened i just kind of i was looking at my parents just like wide-eyed being like why is it so much darker here my, my dad argued it was because the water was deeper but i mean that's not going to be deeper everywhere right <laughs> for one um but like uh, a couple of points of significance for me was going to Galapagos was really a unique experience. Getting there takes a lot of effort. 
because the middle of nowhere, like usually you got to get there by boat. I'm not sure if they have an airport. I assume they do now, but I never actually saw any planes go by when I was, uh, when I was there. Now there, the thing about Galapagos is that there are some pros, but there are definitely some cons. The first con that I remembered was I woke up one morning when we first got there. You kind of have to leave the garbage on, uh, on the, on the deck so that you like, when you go to throw it out, you can't just toss it overboard because that's all kinds of wrong. Instead, you have to go into town and, and dump it out that way. So when we left the garbage bag out overnight, we hadn't anticipated the amount of bugs that were going to be around. The bag had moved about six inches from where we put it <laughs> from the amount of bugs that had broken into it and had, are starting to move around inside of it. And these bugs, these bugs are huge. They are massive. I would remember because at one point while I was in Galapagos, a wasp landed on my knee and it was the size of my kneecap. Uh, there was a, a local uh, kid that was with me that we were playing and stuff. And they said like, don't move. And I don't think I had the energy in me to move because I was completely petrified. It flew off and I'm like, oh good. Yay. And the kid like cheers and stuff. And then it lands on my shoulder. It's like, oh, this is even worse. I don't know how I didn't get stunk, but there you go. But yeah, the, the, the cons are just the big bugs. But the but Galapagos was so vibrant, so fascinating. Uh, the colors are just totally different from anywhere else in the world. It's almost like you had existed in a desaturated plane of existence your entire life. And it just opened your eyes for the very first time. Now, I could wax on poetics about this place all the time. But the uh, what was fun was that like we we got to go around and explore and, and do sort all sorts of things. Because we got to spend like maybe about a week there um, just to soak in the the place and get to know people. So we, we would go to these beaches where they had sea lions. And I remember I had video, we got video recordings of us hanging out with these sea lions and they were just so chill around people. They were just taking naps or swimming or other things like that. Um, some of the, uh, other, uh, sailing vessels that were doing, uh, the trip with us were, some of the crew would go out and, and surf on this plate in this, uh, little beach. At one point we had gotten a guide to, um, take us to sleeping lion rock sleeping lion rock is this uh large uh massive boulder out in just a about a uh an eighth of a mile out of a uh out of the mainland and it resembles a giant sleeping lion hence the name but what's really fascinating about it is that you you can't climb up on it like there is no way that you can get on there unless you had uh, rock climbing gear but that's not the reason why you go there the reason why you go there is because underneath sleeping lion rock is this sprawling ecosystem of coral reefs and various types of exotic fish and even a couple of uh, small sharks and it would just go down forever 
because I mean, you know, on the Galapagos, it's there. It's just like these two tall mountains or whatever, and then just an endless abyss of nothing. That's just this pillar that goes down thousands of feet, teeming with life, and also uh, little phytoplankton that nip at you, and it kind of feels like you got like like little static shocks all over your body. That was fun. But when we uh, finished doing um, the snorkeling and, and swimming around there, I we, we started to drive back, and the engine on the guide, the tour boat broke down right next to another beach of sea lions. And they saw us and immediately all jumped in the water, started uh, swimming rapidly towards us uh, to, to just, just to play. So we're like, well, let's make the most of this. And we started swimming around with them. And I, I remember one particular moment during this that was really funny was we had a video camera from one of the other crew members who had left their camera on record on the boat while the guide was working on the engine. A sea lion jumps up onto the boat. He doesn't pay attention to it because he thinks it's a, a, a tourist or whatever. And the sea lion starts poking his butt with his nose. Guy turns around. The sea lion has already jumped in the water and is barking at him. He turns back, gets back to work. Sea lion jumps back in the boat, starts poking his butt again. <laughs> this happens like one or two more times before the sea lion jumps back up in the boat and the guy turns around and goes, Bruh! and the sea lion yelps and falls into the water. <laughs> of course, it wasn't all... Um, smiles that day because uh one of our friends um if i recall his name was scott uh he was on um i can't remember the vessel that he was uh sailing on but what i do remember was that at some point he got a sea urchin embedded into his leg around the uh, inner thigh which is just abs just unfortunate um what sucks about that is that you can't you can't pull that thing out traditionally. Like if you try pulling it out by your hands, it's just not going to work. But what you do have to do is you need to introduce uh, ammonia or, or an acidic pH balance to the sea urchin. For those of you scientifically minded, I think you know where I'm going with this. For those that don't, he had to pee on it, which was a little embarrassing because he had to decide whether to do it immediately or, uh, save his wife the embarrassment and wait until he got home to do it. With the sea urchin in his leg. With the sea urchin in his leg. He chose the former. But I mean, wouldn't you? Like, wouldn't anybody? It's a good thing that he had, uh, he, he, the stress of the situation had him ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your next stop? Uh, Marchese's. Marchese's was quite different from the uh from Galapagos uh, mostly because while there there weren't as many like sea lions or anything like that the bugs were much larger not as vibrant but but much larger I'm not sure if it was Galapagos or Marchese's but at one point my dad got fed up with it he was tired of the bugs he was tired of the insects and he went into the store to try and see if he could find some kind of spray or fumigation to deal with it and he found a can of spray that is without a doubt illegal in the States. It is, it is not something that messes around. So, uh, 
he called out my mom, my sister, and I to come out of the boat, and he went in and sprayed it, and you just hear, shh. All the bugs died instantly in the in in the boat, and we spent months, literally months, finding these uh, dead bugs all over the all over the boat. Give me a sense of of time. You know, you spend a lot of time in the ocean, open ocean. Then you spend a little bit of time visiting a port. Is that how it generally works? The way that our ta- the timing would work is sailing out at sea, nobody really prepares you for the amount of boredom that'll come up. Because there is nothing out there. There's no land, there's no... Uh, any vibrant visuals for long periods of time. It's just you, the boat, and nothing else. Sometimes you get a little bit of infra- uh, you get a little bit of uh, stimulation by seeing maybe like if it's windy and like some waves are forming out at sea, but that's about it. To counteract that, you, you spend a little bit of time on port, just for like a couple of days, just so you can get get your supplies, get time to relax, get time to recuperate. Because um, you end up spending very long legs just trying to get there. You're not just wandering around out there. You don't have the time for that. For example, uh, going from Ecuador to Marquesas took us about two weeks. And that was that was a long period to not have anything. I mean, don't get me wrong. We had, we had uh, ways to entertain ourselves. We had... We had uh, television. We had some VHS tapes. Yeah, we were back way back then. I had a Sega Genesis that we can only work a half hour at a time because it was waterlogged with saltwater damage. Though I get the feeling that the reason why my dad told me that was because he was trying to prevent me from playing video games too often. <laughs> um, so what would your, your day be like? Um, you had chores, I'm sure, at some point. You'd be surprised. Um, we'd wake up. A lot of our food would be probably uh, prepped already. It would be like um, like bread or some sandwiches or something like that. But um, mom would be making breakfast and she would be trying to find ways to change things up. Or if she was completely tired, like she probably was, uh, dad would make breakfast. We'd come up and I would mostly be in charge of trying to entertain mom and dad while they were just watching the autopilot go. The most amount of chores that would really happen was like we'd have to adjust the sails or we'd have to wash the boat when we get back. Like all the chores really only started when we were in in port because you can't really wash the boat when you're out at sea. Uh, do Just mostly like maintaining your hygiene, maintaining your composure and entertaining everybody is just a big part of your day. Um, for a little kid, that seems like it takes forever where just there's just a whole lot of nothing going on. But we found ways to to do stuff. Like I, I got into a habit of doing like a little improv theater with my sister on the deck that my parents would watch like a television set because they couldn't really go downstairs and watch TV because they had to they had to keep watch on the autopilot. They had to keep watch to see that they're you know, we weren't gonna accidentally run into something. But the nice thing is that we're going at such a speed that uh, you could get away with it. Uh, you can get away with going downstairs, making yourself a sandwich or watching something for like five minutes. 
we also had a, like a, a computer, but like uh, my parents, their their day to day activities were different. They had to do navigation. They had to do uh, they had to uh, gauge out the charts. They had to figure out our telemetry. They had to communicate with the other uh, vessels in the convoy. Um, they had to keep a, vil- a vigilant lookout for any ships that might be crossing our paths. Because when when a when a ship hits you to a point where you can see them on the horizon. That is unbelievably close. That is an event. And you got to make sure that uh, they are, they have no beef with you or are just, uh, are just wanting to talk with you or something. Sometimes we've actually had uh, bits of entertaining moments where we'd run into another vessel and we'd like organize a little bit of a fun event. Like I remember one time we had another vessel whose name is eluding me right now challenge us to a water balloon fight. I can't remember when this was, but I do remember that we got all of these water balloons prepped. We were ready to bomb them and we get, we get like really close to them and none of us can throw <laughs> at all. Every single water balloon does not make its mark and just falls off the wayside so my dad has to come around and get even closer. And at one point, the other vessel had a bottle rocket with water balloons attached to it, and they hit our mast. Oh, gosh. So there were there were kids in the other vessel as well. There were there were kids in the other vessel. Like, they were older than us. They were, like, uh, in their preteens. But there were kids in the other vessel. And my dad calls them up on the radio. It's like, I would just like to say, bravo, I think you might have hit my wind cups. <laughs> I can't remember if we lost that instrument at the, at some point uh, at, at, during that point. I remember we did lose those wind cups later on during a storm. Well, what was your next port after Marquesas? Let me think, because get my memory does get a little bit blurry around there. I actually used to have a map in my ha- in my bedroom that showed like a list of all the places we went to, but that's at home and. Well, um, how long did it take the whole trip? You said it may take two years. What did it wind up taking? It took us about a year and a half. And you were, did you homeschool during that time or? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I homeschooled during that time, uh, where we did, uh, oh, I cannot remember the name of the homeschool, but like my my mom and my dad would take turns teaching me and my sister. And we would read some really interesting things like, uh, a lot of books like, it was like some knockoff of a prairie home companion where it was like people out in the wilderness uh, trying to survive and having their, their log hut and all that stuff. And uh, I think somebody got like the shivers or something at some point in the story. What was cool though was that we would learn um, about – we would learn about like ancient mythology and, and ancient history – around the times we were in some of those locations. Like I learned about ancient Egypt when I was near Egypt, like when I was in the Red Sea. And uh, we ended up finishing school pretty early. Uh, we, we actually ended up, gra- I, I ended up graduating third and fourth grade about a year early because uh, I got through the material so quickly because we would just go at it every day. By the time that we hit Indonesia, I was done. And so was my sister. And they didn't have any more material to use. So um, my parents wanted to reward me for doing such a good job and getting all that stuff done. 
but they were in Indonesia and they weren't really sure what they could get us. So they would go to the store and they bought, they bought, they bought me some Star Wars toys to be like, you did such a good job. You deserve a toy. And I, I, as soon as I saw these toys, oh man. So I got a, a Luke Skywalker made out of a thick resin polymer where you could not bend his arms. He was literally just a rubber mold and stuck in a T-pose. And you needed to have like physical strength to, to bend this thing. And a Princess Leia doll that was so shoddily constructed, as soon as you'd bend any of her limbs, they would break off. And they were just as easy to like install or break or, or break off. So I just called her break apart Leia. I, I couldn't be mad at them. Like I was not mad. I rem- I distinctly remember I was not mad at them. Well, probably because I knew how difficult it must have been to get those toys. To find that, yeah. And so. To find that, it was. Um, <laughs> uh, the thing about toys, uh, going around the world was that like, you you develop an unusual attachment to them. Uh, mostly because like they're the only things you got. Uh, my sister and I, we would play, we play all sorts of things together. Um, mostly like I would have my star Wars toys or whatever action figures I had. My sister would have pound puppies or rather the, the kitty version of the pound puppies. I think they called them pound prairies, which is a God awful name. My sister had three of them, but the one that I remember was Balios. I think she named them after the three cats from Aristocats. Balios was one of the three cats that we used to play with a lot. It was like this little tiny little toy kitten. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because at one point, I think it was on our way to Australia, Balios fell overboard. And my sister screamed. She screamed in absolute terror that uh Balios fell overboard. My my dad woke up because he was he was sleeping because my mom was on watch, scrambled all the way upstairs, was totally convinced that Kayla fell overboard. And she's crying and my mom's cu- uh, cuddling with her, like holding her close. And we explain that Balios died or Balios got lost at sea and my dad just kind of rolls his eyes and just goes the fuck back downstairs. <laughs> Pardon my French. <laughs> Just back to sleep. I mean, he was running on three hours. Like at that point, I don't blame him. But we treat they my my sister treated that like it was the loss of a loved one. And to be honest, I was feeling it too. Because uh, even though I was a lot older, we we grew attached to these these stupid toys. We we built stories out of them. We built lives out of them. We had this whole background with this character. And when we got to Australia later on, my mom managed to find a, uh, a whole kit or rather a whole like set of like, uh, these, these kitties and like even like a bigger puppy one or something like that. And they had this, they, they weaved, my mom weaved this ridiculous story of how the dolphins rescued her and, and rescued Balios and brought him to Santa and Santa found a way to bring them to us. <laughs> and it was it was one of those kind of things where, like, as a kid, we just did not question it. But 
it, it really showed how much that uh, mom and dad cared about us. Even even when they were waterlogged, dead tired, running on three hours of sleep a day, maybe less, they never stopped caring about how we were feeling about any given situation. Was there anything that you learned during that trip that you've, you know, it's come in handy later in life? Well, patience for one. I, I learned very quickly that life is not going to be an endless parade of events that's going to, that exists solely for the purpose of entertaining me. So I learned to appreciate introspection. I learned to appreciate um, being in my own head and learning and playing with stories and ideas and, and so on and so forth. I learned about humility because I had nearly died about three times, one of which was for a very stupid reason. More into that in a bit. Uh, the, but I think the one lesson that I learned greater than anything, it's probably one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, I'm trying to remember what island we were on. It was... It was um, it was either Vanuatu or Rarotonga or one of those. But I remember we were heading into town on the boat. We had to use a dinghy to go over to dump off all of our garbage. The town had stilts on all the houses. They had two-story blocks for that. When, when flooding would come in, you could just go up to the second floor. And I was walking with my dad, and a bunch of uh, the people in the town came up to us and asked us to take their garbage. They were all children. I was confused. My dad was like, all right, whatever. And he handed them the bags and the kids ran off and they ripped the bags apart. They, they started harvesting all the junk that was in there and they started taking, they took a carton of milk and started playing soccer with it. And my dad didn't look at it like my, my, there was never a point where we looked at that derisively but more of just, wow, we really take things for granted. My dad looks down at me and said, well, I mean, that's different, right? And I, my, my response was, what right do I have to complain about anything? I'm halfway around the world on a boat with what I thought was nothing, but the little tiny things, having, having a milk carton, having running water readily available, having filtered water readily available, even just having a, a, a bed space I could call my own and no one else's, even if it was just next to the anchor room, it really helped me come to terms with the fact of how unbelievably privileged I am and how I should never take that for granted. The ultimate conclusion I came from that, aside from, you know, how unbelievably privileged I am, was when it comes to people from around the world, more often times than not, they're just living a different culture than I am. They have a different lifestyle. They have different priorities. They have different perspectives. And just because it doesn't match with mine doesn't mean that I can't make a friend out of them. And it doesn't mean that we can't get along either. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. There were there were some people that were absolutely horrible in the time that I met them. But more often times than not, strangers turned out to be pretty friendly. And I was lucky for that. And it helps give me a much more optimistic view on the human race in general. Almost, uh, almost ignorantly optimistic, I suppose, in some by by some people's uh, criticism. Well, what were some of your near death experiences? Were they on this okay. trip? Let's see. There were there were a couple of stories where like it was just just uh, here and there, and that's it. Um, there were the two times that we went into a monsoon. Or rather, sorry, a typhoon is the right term. It's like a uh, it's like a hurricane in the Pacific. Our our instruments got scrambled and we ended up going through it twice. Either that, or it turned around and started chasing after us. At least that's what my that's what my parents claimed happened. <laughs> there was the time that we were we were in a uh, resort uh, anchored. And the anchor got tied, uh, got wrapped twice around a uh, a catamaran and was about to like collide with them and, and and sink. And the only person that was on the boat at the time was my mom. So we had to uh, take the dinghy and try to push them apart when uh, uh, when I and a friend of mine uh, had discovered that my mom was bridging these two ships apart with her body. I think the reason why everybody was gone was that they were all going to celebrate a birthday party. And my mom just wanted to stay in for, like, have a nice day to herself. Funny how that turned out. But, yeah, the the two ones that were more in direct relation to me was um, we were on a – we were on a, a random nameless island. It was on I, – I believe it was uninhabited. We were just mooring there to, like, uh, get some shelter for the night and just be anchored there and just take a break from sailing. Um, and we were with, uh, ocean stream and a couple of other vessels and we all went down to the beach and started spending some time. And I started walking with my dad to the other side of the Island where there was this big sprawling coral reef that actually had surfaced slightly, um, at low tide. So being the adventurous kid that I was, I walked out into the, uh, onto all the rocks to, to look out as far as I could. And it was around that point that high tide started to come in and it came in fast. Um, so I had to kind of play hopscotch with these slippery reef like rocks, uh, covered in, uh, algae and a wave flowed over the, uh, the whole thing knocked into me and I fell into these nooks and crannies full of sharp coral and I started floating through around the whole thing. And I got beaten to within an inch of my life. Um, my dad was ready to jump in, even though that the, 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 cr- these nooks of, uh, or rather these flues were too narrow for him to fit into. But eventually I grabbed, I managed to grab on with my bare hands onto, uh, the shore and, and yank myself back up. And I, I was covered in cuts. I was bleeding everywhere. I was crying and. I had to get walked back and we tried to make a, a day of, we tried to make a more pleasant day of it. Cause like uh, we didn't have enough bandages for me to, to patch me up or anything like that. So we just had to wash me down and make sure I didn't get infected. The other one was, um, entirely emphatically my fault. 
So at one point when we were nearing the end of our journey, um, I wanted to celebrate. I wanted to part. I wanted to entertain people and be really exciting and stuff like that. So we went to a restaurant to eat and it was one of those fancy restaurants in Florida. It was like the last thing that we were going to do before we go home. And I told the waiter that I wanted to entertain people and I'm going to put on a show. And they're like, well, what kind of show are you going to do? It's like, well, we're going to be sailing out and I'm going to do something to entertain everybody. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to strap a harness to myself, get raised up and fly around while we played the Macarena or whatever, because apparently that was a song that we still had. My parents were, were, were supportive of it, even if they thought it was a bad idea. And they started hoisting me up and I started doing it. Nobody could hear the music because we had this, this crummy little stereo system downstairs. My sister kind of stared at me dejectedly, almost uh, like she was just like, this is, this is such a terrible idea. And at one point when I was about to slide off from the dance, the harness snapped and wrapped twice around my neck. And I, I almost hung myself. It's <laughs> terrifying. I mean, if you saw my face, it was like absolute uh, terror. And my sister kind of looked over at my parents like, Mom, I think Kennedy's choking. I'm Kyle. This is Steven. Together we host a show called Boy Meets World. Tell them what we cover on Boy Meets World. Boy Meets World. But that's not all, is it? No. No, we cover life experiences. Ours. Oh, son of a (laughs) Just check out the show, please. We really, <laughs> we really need it. Okay, we need a win. Just check us out. We talk about the show Boy Meets World. Each episode of our show, we run parallel for an episode of Boy Meets World, where we will examine the show. That's way too much. What happens? You know, our life, how it relates to it, experiences. I can't believe you're still recording. I am recording. This. <laughs> check it out, guys. You'll get some hilarious stories from me and Steven from our childhood. You'll get a great... <laughs> ah, I lost it. So, we were uh, part of this Round the World rally. Um, it was actually like this this uh, service where these people would be like, hey, give us some money and we will help get you these inlets to go to and help guide you along the way. Long story short, it was a complete ripoff. And through too many events that I can really enumerate now, at this point, my dad found a way to break out of it and get some of his money back. Because the whole thing was such was such a mess. So we went off on our own. And we ended up going to the Red Sea instead of down under South Africa. We didn't want to do South Africa because uh, the, the storms would get pretty bad down there. It would get pretty cold as well, or at least that's what we thought. So we figured going up through the Red Sea would be less problematic in the late 90s. We, we hit a couple of areas there. We hit uh, Yemen. We hit Djibouti. We hit Sudan. But the moment that I remember the most was when we got to Suez. Suez is a inlet uh it's a it's kind of it's a canal that bridges um the arabian peninsula with egypt and it helps you open from the red sea into the mediterranean sea 
we need to go through there. And we had been sailing for an unbelievably long time. And we arrived at around 5.30 in the morning at Suez. We were all exhausted. We were all completely worn out. And we could have sworn that we were hallucinating because we saw a portly man in pajamas with bunny slippers approach us with Dunkin' Donuts. And he says, welcome to Egypt. I'm the Prince of the Red Sea. In truth, he ran a, uh, he ran an insurance company that in order for you to go through the Suez, you need to have sailing vessels that rep that you represent that, that ha they have a representative, uh, locally before they're allowed to go through. Now, all these agencies were competing massively for, for approval. So they would bribe, they would try to make you feel as comfortable with them as possible because getting an American vessel across the Suez was a big deal because it meant that you could be trusted with really big stuff. And a lot of times those trade vessels and stuff, like sometimes they want to see like, well, if you've dealt with Americans, then, well, all right. And he, he, he invited us into his home. He showed us his big birds. He gave us his birds as, as a gift. He, he gave us all these, these, uh, treats and prizes and things like that. And he gave, he gave us tickets to, to visit Cairo and actually see the pyramids. And I got to tell you, seeing the pyramids was the most conflicting experience <laughs> because we get there and across the street from the Sphinx is a pizza hut. And I checked from what I understand that pizza hut is still there after all these years. You go to the uh, the pyramids, and there it is. It is an absolute tourist trap. There are people from all over the world trying to get photos of them next to the pyramids, and they even invite you to go into the pyramid and tour around. Which is like, you know, you get in your head about like scenes from like The Mummy or or Indiana Jones. We're like, oh, that sounds so exciting. But you go in there, and the 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 tunnel is so narrow. I was like. 10 years old when I went in and I was, I was almost too big to fit in it. My dad could like, my dad had to hunch over and like crouch down to crawl inside and you get all the way in there. There are all these different areas that are locked off, like with bars and stuff and are not letting anybody go through, but they have one room that they, you go into and you go inside and it is an empty, large blank space with a stone bathtub that I assume used to be a sarcophagus and a sign with a camera that says, do not take any pictures. My dad took three <laughs> because I, I think he was just so frustrated at that point. He's like, nah, not nah, a hell with you. <laughs> I came all the way here. I'm taking some pictures. We did get to go to the, uh, the, the Egyptian museum and a couple of other places, but like, uh, I think it was just the idea that like going to the pyramids and just having it so stripped bare, it was like legitimately frustrating, which was funny because like at one point uh, we got out and they're like, Hey, there's another pyramid that's even larger that costs more money to go in. That's also the same exact experience. My dad's like, I think I'll pass. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about your art, your audio drama and what you do for, you know, are you a writer? 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I went to I went into uh, the film industry hoping that I can, you know, make a movies one day, at least at least help make them. Um, I started with post-production because um, I found ha- I had a knack for for editing, like editing the story after the fact. But storytelling never went away from me, even after like this whole big journey. I, I grew to appreciate the value of those kinds of stories, even if you just spoke them aloud. But working with other people for a while, I, I start feeling I started to feel that antsiness and frustration that I wanted to tell my own story. So I eventually buckled down, put a lot of uh, my fu- put a lot of my my savings into trying to make my first directed experience, which was Magus Elgar. It was an audio drama. Um, inspired, I was inspired by the works of Terry Pratchett. Uh, he he wrote uh, Discworld and Good Omens. If you're familiar with that TV show that just came out, and it was it was a hit. Like I took a lot of my experiences into playing around with the world and and trying to explore all these different ideas behind magic and, and how things were done. Cause I wanted to try something a little bit different than just like, well, magic is just a thing. And then it just happens. I wanted to find some kind of explanation behind it. But yeah, uh, the, the, the premise of it is it's about, um, Magus Elgar, a magical troubleshooter, uh, working with his apprentice, Udo Malaki and two scientists from the dimension of earth to hunt, something called stamps scientific tools augmented with magical power trying to find a way to stabilize them before they rip all of reality apart or at least before people find out that they are the ones that made them <laughs> what's it called again it's called magus elgar um it's available wherever audiobooks are sold um we actually have a website where you can find a link of like where everything is if you just go to magus we also we've been nominated for best original work by the Audio Publishers Association. We've we've gotten a couple of accolades, like we got a Telly Award for some of our work on the project. And it's about it's about eleven episodes, and it's great for drives. And yes, it is perfectly safe for children. It is designed for the big kid at heart, and it's all about magic and stuff. So you know, that's always fun. Thank you.